everyone. How are we doing this morning? Excellent, excellent. We are in 2 Thessalonians and the second chapter of that book. And as we begin, it is my heart's desire that by the end of this series of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we would notice and recognize this picture, which is cold fingers juggling green what? Reindeer. And as odd as it seems, it is a little picture to help us remember the message of the gospel of all things. The cold fingers represent the idea of creation and the fall that God created us in, this, in his image in a perfect relationship with him. And then Adam and Eve sinned, and therefore all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Cold fingers, juggling with the idea of God's justice. When we sinned, God judged us. There's none holy, no, not one. And our sin deserves God's eternal wrath and punishment. And there's nothing we can do to earn our way out of that debt. We are so in debt, we cannot pay the ransom. So God brought in this concept that he originated called grace and the gospel. And so Jesus Christ came and paid our sins, lived the perfect life on our behalf, rose again from the dead, proving his sacrifice was sufficient, good, and right. And now he asks us, do you believe? We need to have a response to it. So cold fingers juggling green reindeers represents creation, fall, God's justice, grace in the gospel, and a response because that is the heart and soul of what it is to be a believer. And that is the heart and soul of the message that we are to declare to a fallen, hurt world. The fallen, hurt world does not need more politicians. The fallen, lost world does not need more education. The fallen, lost world does not need more money. The fallen, lost world does not need more armies. The fallen, lost world needs the gospel message. All of those things are necessary, but first and foremost, they need the hope that Jesus Christ and him alone can bring, and you are the ambassadors of that message, both through your words and through your actions. So, picking up in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the last couple weeks I know in the end of 1 Thessalonians, and especially the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, they can be a bit, uh, maybe overwhelming is the word. I understand that when we start talking about the end times, when we start talking about what kind of events have to take place before Jesus returns, and then when Jesus returns, last week we saw God will judge those who are not in Christ, and it will be a terrible judgment. Hell is a terribly uncomfortable, eternal place of no hope and comfort. It can be overwhelming. And you can walk away with these words of Paul and you can feel dark. And the goal is Paul's not trying to make the Christian feel dark and gloomy and, oh, death and defeat and, and, and the devil and his works. But Paul is using these things to remind that church in Thessalonica that they have a lot in common with every Christian that's suffering, and that evil one day will be restricted and judged, 
And it's not up to you to judge that wickedness. God judges it. And so it really should be a relief to us as believers when we talk about God's judgment upon the lost and when we talk about the place of hell. It should bring us comfort because we're not going there. And it should motivate us to share that gospel message that we're learning each and every single week. This week included, we have some challenging verses ahead of us, and um, let's just start. Chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 1 through 3 and verse 5, all talk about this idea of not being deceived. Don't be deceived. And he starts out by saying, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. That's a theme that he's mentioned many times. The Lord returning, and those who are already dead will return with him in the clouds, and those that are still alive when he returns will be caught up to them after they've been resurrected. So we remember that imagery from 1 Thessalonians chapter, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 4, and 5. We understand that imagery, and we have it in our mind. And so he says, now concerning that particular event, we ask you, brothers and sisters, verse 2, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. And then verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Evidently, while this church was in its infancy, learning from Paul and growing in faith, Paul leaves, sends Timothy. Paul writes a second time in this letter. And between that time, he's gotten reports back from the church at Thessalonica that some of them are believing that Jesus already has returned. Now, that's not a new philosophy. That's not a new theology. People still believe that today. They're called hyper-preterists. No need to go into that, but they believe that Jesus already has returned, and we're basically living in heaven right now. Now, there'll be a better heaven, but this is pretty much it. And I don't know about you, but um, it's, this is not heaven. It's not. But there were some people persuading the church of Thessalonica that Jesus has already returned, and, well, maybe you missed it. Now, wouldn't that be a dark and gloomy day to think, uh-oh, we all missed it. And, of course, if you missed it, what comes to your mind? Maybe I'm not a Christian then. And then what else comes to my mind? Maybe Jesus isn't really real. Maybe he didn't really pay for my sins. Maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe Buddhists are right, and I'm wrong if Jesus has already returned. And so he sets the record straight and says, it doesn't matter what anyone else comes to you and says. It doesn't matter if they raise their hand and say, this is a prophecy from God. It doesn't matter if they hand you a letter or a book. If it hasn't come from me, don't believe it. That's a beautiful principle because Paul has mentioned that more than once in these letters, pay attention to what is written in the Word. Pay attention to it. This is our guiding light. This is our source of truth. It does not matter how persuasive and how many TV followers they have or how big of a broadcast they have. It doesn't matter if it isn't according to Scripture. It is a lie. 
and you're not to believe it. It may feel good, it may make logical sense, it may invoke an emotion from you, but if it is not Scripture, it is not God's truth. And Paul had to remind them of that. He says, people are going to come in and tell you all sorts of things. Jesus said, in those last days, you're going to have people trying to itch your ears with fancy stories of grand theology and, and statements. Don't believe it. Don't be deceived. And so he has to tell them, this lie that has crept into your city, into your church, is not true. Jesus has not yet returned. There's application in that for us today. One, Jesus has still not returned. But two, I think we should follow suit. There are a lot of books, a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of large popular churches, a lot of large popular pastors that are selling books and just immensely followed by crowds. You need to be cautious in what you read and what you listen to online, on TV, and on the radio, and what you read in a book or a magazine or in a blog. If it does not line up with Scripture, don't pay any attention to it outside of, well, that might be interesting. But don't let it be a leading life principle. Don't adopt it as truth. God's Word is truth. Jesus says in John 17, Thy Word is truth. He's referring to Scripture. Thy word is truth. A lot of cults, a lot of false, the deceiver and the antichrist. You've heard that word before, antichrist? Well, John, the apostle, who was beloved and loved of Jesus Christ, just declared who the antichrist is. It is the person who goes out and says Jesus isn't real. Antichrist may be a person in the future or definitely is today an idea that God is not important in my life and denies Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man. It is the Antichrist. It is the one who denies Christ against Christ. It can be defined as the Antichrist. In fact, John even says in uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, he says, this is how we can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh from God, that is, truly is who he is, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. So that idea of being against Christ, rejecting Christ, silencing Christ, putting him to rest, ignoring him, denying him, fighting against him and his people, John says, hey, it's going to come in the future, and guess what? It's already here. People hate Christ. And all Paul is saying is that there seems to be an individual later on in history that is going to be so obvious to the whole world that they are not just in the spirit of Antichrist, but they're defined as the lawless one the one who is so consumed with self-worship and the destruction of anything God in Christ that they will set themselves up as God. Well, I, I told you that I didn't want this to be really dark feeling, and I just told you about this really wicked person that's going to be here, and this spirit that is running through the world that is against Christ. 
I don't know how much darker it can become but talking about things like that. But there's yet more. Back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, we read something about the timing of this man of lawlessness. We read, And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. There's a time. There's a time when God will withhold his hand from that person's influence and power and status, and he will be completely revealed, and it will be noticeable, and his time will have come. Has that happened yet? I don't think so, because God connects all of these things with Jesus' second coming, and with his second coming comes the raising of the dead. Have you seen all the dead raised yet? No. So I think we're on good footing that these events have not occurred yet. And Paul says, I'll give you a hint on when it's going to be occurred, when the hand is moved back and he's revealed. Paul, I need dates and times. Dates and times. I mean, give me a year, because in a year I know I got a, a one in 365 chance. Even better if you can give me the month. Even better if you can give me the day or the hour. And then we take all of Scripture into account and go, oh, that's right, Jesus told us, and we've already seen it. He's not going to tell us the day or the hour. Only the Father in heaven knows the day and the hour. All we can see is surmise this seems to be not getting much better. And wow, now I see someone exalting themselves up as God. Has anyone ever done that in history? Hundreds of people have done that in history. Even in 70 AD, when uh, before these books were even finished written, a Roman emperor walked right into the temple in 70 AD, sacrificed pigs on the altar, threw the blood around in the altar, and declared himself to be God. But Jesus didn't return yet. He was a symbol and a sign of what is yet to come into this world. Someone with such evil control over those who are not believers that he will deceive many into believing that he is a Christ. In fact, uh, we continue here in verse 8, and it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy the splendor of his, and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So here we have this lawless one who is invoking the world to worship him, who hates God and hates Christ, who sets themselves up as a god in Jerusalem. And the way he's defeated is Jesus comes back and he's gone, destroyed by his breath, by a word. Jesus doesn't have to take up arms. He's not swinging his sword around. He's not gathering an army, even though he has the armies of heaven. He just simply comes back, and the evil one is vanquished, destroyed, gone. Notice how he does this. And then the lawless, lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow. How? With the breath of his mouth. Now, that does not mean that he has uncontrolled um, bad breath. What it means is it's the power of his word. The simple presence of his word destroys. 
And you see that imagery in the book of Revelation where it talks about Jesus coming back on a horse with a sword, a flaming sword out of his mouth. Just simply declaring. That's all he has to do. That's the power he has in his word. Just like he used his word to create the heavens and earth, he uses his word to destroy the evil in this world and the lawless one who stands in opposition to Christ. And then we're told a little bit about this lawless one's great deception that he'll put on the people. In verse 9 through the end of that section, verse 12, he says, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays and powers and signs and wonders that serve the lie. So this lawless one who sets themselves up almost will look indistinguishable from what we consider Satan to be, a deceiver and a liar, but they have power. How they have power, I don't know. Sort of the power that God gave Satan when he brought Job's destruction upon him, the permission that God gave Satan. He's going to have unusual powers to the point of signs and wonders, and many people are deceived by the visual sign and wonder. Show me a sign. Show me a wonder. Show me a miracle, and I'll believe. God doesn't work that way. God says, look in your heart. Do you believe me? You don't need signs and wonders to believe. But this individual is going to come on the stage and just wow people. And we're going to think, wow, is this an alien? Is this someone from outer space? Is this someone from the future? How can this person be so manipulative and, and show us so many great signs and wonders that the whole world is turned on end following them? Just the way that Satan does to deceive and to trick us into thinking in this person there is God power. God says, no, I'm the only God, I'm the only power, and in my Son, Jesus Christ. And he continues in verse 10, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth so and so be saved. So the people that follow this individual who sets themselves up as God, all they had to do was believe the truth and they'd be saved. It's not a mind game and it's not complicated. It's not confusing. It's not based on your effort. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, it's based on faith, not works, so that you could boast to God, oh, look at how good I am. I deserve heaven. No! God has never rewarded people like that. He rewards people based on the work of Christ and Christ alone. And all you have to do is believe and you're saved. And Paul says, even in this moment where this man of lawlessness is revealed, just like Satan deceives with wonders and lies and tricks you, there's still hope. All you have to do is believe the truth and you'll be saved. I'll be saved out of his grip of power. I'll be saved out of his damnation, out of his ending. I'll be in the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of eternal damnation. Believe the truth, and you're saved. He says, for this reason, verse 11, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. God says, if this is the path you want to go down, if you want to believe this man of lawlessness, if you don't believe in the signs and wonders, if you want to deny Christ, if you want to ignore Him, if you want to reject the Gospel, 
God basically said, I'll give you over to that. That'll be yours then. Own it. But if you're going to own that in this life, realize that in the next life, you are going to regret every second you rejected the gospel. And you are going to be mindful, painfully mindful, that all you had to do was believe. You did not have to earn it. You did not have to work for it. You did not have to pay for it. It was a free gift from God called grace. In the book of 1 Corinthians, as a take-home, we have this beautiful passage of Scripture. And it's often read at funerals because there's a deep connection at funerals to these words that Paul encourages the churches, uh, especially in verse 54 and following to the end of the chapter. Listen to these words. And I hope these are familiar to you because these are great encouraging words of what ends up happening after this man of lawlessness is revealed and after Jesus comes and by the power of his word destroys him. This is what, this is our part in it, you might say. This is kind of where we fit into that entire picture of what the future is yet to unfold. Paul says, when the perishable has clothed itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, that is, when death happens to us, then the saying that is written will come to pass. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law or obedience. But thanks be to God. Why? We've just been talking about death. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't give us victory over death, over sin, over the law, over the lawless one, through your good works. He gives us victory through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means what Jesus Christ did when he came and was born and lived under the law and suffered on your behalf on the cross was considered guilty of blasphemy. When he did that, and he was nailed to the cross and died and breathed his last and said, I give my spirit up to the Lord and buried in that tomb, and three days later rose again. When all those events took place, and you say, I believe that he did that on my behalf, that he suffered the punishment and pain of God's wrath on my behalf, and that all I must do is believe he did that on my behalf, you shall be saved. Victory is through Christ. The victory is not through us. The victory is not through another. Now the man of lawlessness will say, the victory is through me. You bow to me and you'll be safe. You bow to me, you'll have peace. You bow to me, you'll have wealth. You bow to me, you'll be okay. But just like Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness and the devil said, hey, if you bow to me real quick, I will give you everything you see. You don't have to go to the cross. Jesus said, get behind me. I will not worship anyone but God and God alone. I put my trust and faith only in Him. That's the end all and be all of my entire faith. I believe Christ took my place victoriously. And so Paul says, 
Where is the sting of death? Where is the power of the law? He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then concludes in that verse, therefore, this is the conclusion. This is, okay, what does all of this mean for me today, Paul? All of this talk about the man of lawlessness, all this talk about sin and death, all this talk about the victory over the grave, all this talk about immortality. Where, what do I do with it? He says, therefore, in verse 54, my dear brothers and sisters, stay firm. Okay, keep the faith. I see the world around me going to hell in a handbasket. I see people over here declaring one thing about Jesus and these people over here declaring something different about a different religion. I hear this group of people in this part of culture saying this about how I'm supposed to live my life. I need to stand firm. What do you think he's telling us to stand firm upon? God's Word. It's God's Word. Stand firm upon God's Word. Realize that you're not supposed to compromise it. Realize it, that it is truth. Realize it, that it does tell us how to live this life and how to prepare for the next one. Realize that what it says is right. I've often said and will, will say to the day that the Lord takes me home, if you stand with God upon His Word and the rest of the world laughs at you and contradicts you and tells you you are wrong, if you stand with God on His Word, you stand in the majority. It doesn't matter if the rest of the world denies the truth of Scripture. If you stand firm that my victory is through Jesus Christ and Him alone, you stand with the Almighty God of heaven and earth. And there is no safer, better, peaceful, joyful place to be than standing with God. He will protect you. He will defend you. You don't have to defend His Word. He defends His Word. You don't have to defend the resurrection of Christ. Jesus defends that resurrection. You don't have to defend faith. He defends it. You stand firm in what you believe and declare it to a lost and fallen culture and do your part by living it in your life. That's a beautiful thing. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What encouraging words. All of that stuff about the man of lawlessness, all of his deception, all of his power, all of the destruction that he's going to bring and the eternal damnation that he's going to suffer and lead many people to, it's okay. Because you can get out of that by believing in Christ and in doing so. It's going to be better than just, you'll be okay. You're victorious. And there is no better example that God has given to the church about victory over sin, death, and the devil than in communion. And as the elders come forward, communion reminds us that this really took place. He really died upon the cross. He really shed His blood and broke His body on your behalf. He's your substitute sacrifice. And in this simple act, and now it's a little bit more complicated with individual pieces, having to open that up with your fingers is really difficult, but in that simple act, you are demonstrating to the world around you 
that your trust and confidence is not in your own works, but in the works of the sacrifice. Jesus Christ, let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the example of Christ's life, but more than just an example, we thank you that he was our sacrifice. And so help us, Father, through this small, simple sharing of this Last Supper and Communion, help us build each other up with confidence and assurance that you have the victory, the victory alone. In Christ's name, all of God's people said, Amen.